Today, uh, we're going to talk about money. You're like, oh, darn it. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about money and possessions and our stuff and the ideas of ownership and stewardship and generosity. That's my title today. Ownership, stewardship, money, stuff, and generosity. It's, it's catchy. I want to look at uh, two very different passages of Scripture today. Both of them are kind of obscure. Uh, one is part of a story in the Old Testament, and the other is a lesser-known parable of, that was taught by Jesus. And my goal is to draw out the principles in these stories, one historical and one a parable, and hopefully we can connect those principles in a way that will speak to our views on money and our stuff and giving. Giving to the felt needs in our community and around the world, giving to the mission of the church and our community to reach uh, people with the life-changing gospel of Jesus, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. So, disclaimer, right up front here. Right at the top among my favorite things to talk about in the Sunday morning church setting is the topic of money. I love it. It is so much fun to talk about as a pastor. It makes me so, uh, I'm just so comfortable with it. It's not awkward at all. I appreciate making eye contact with you as much as possible when I'm talking about our money. And um, if, you, if you're feeling awkward right now, and you're, gonna, you're feeling awkward as you go home today and you're sitting in your car talking about the sermon and you're like, I don't even know if I want to talk about this. Um, I'm not especially enjoying this either. Just wanted to throw that out there, okay? I embellish a little, but it is a hard thing for a pastor to talk about. So we're going to start in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This may not be one of the more familiar stories in the Old Testament. This may be the first time you've ever heard or studied or heard this taught on a Sunday morning. So let me give you some context for this. David is the king of Israel. Have you ever heard of David? All right, so already we're kind of familiar. He's coming to the end of his life. One day he's sitting in his palace, and he lives in this incredible palace of stone and marble and rare wood. And he realizes that all these years he's been able to live in luxury, but God, who lives, you know, in their mind, God lived in this box called what? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Remember that? The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And in their minds, it literally embodied the presence of God. So the Ark of the Covenant was housed. Do you remember where they kept the Ark? Do you remember that? Remember where they kept the Ark at this point? Where was the Holy of Holies? Tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent, Okay. The tabernacle is a tent. So here's David realizing, I live in all this luxury. And one day it occurs to him, but God lives in a tent. Like basically outside. Because, I mean, let's admit, a tent is outside. And I know I don't, some of you like to live outside, but um, I, I, I don't, the camping thing. Anyway, that's, a diff, that's off topic. A tent is outside. Living in a tent is living outside. So uh, we can debate that all day long. God is in a tent in a box outside. So they didn't believe God lived in the box. Some of them might have, but the Ark of the Covenant was very sacred to them. Like to them, it was sort of where God was on location. And it occurred to David after all these years that God and his box have been in a tent. It's time to build God a temple. All the surrounding pagan nations had all these incredible temples, elaborate temples built to their gods, and Yahweh, Jehovah God, did not have a temple. So David decided, I'm going to build our God, Yahweh, the one true God, the most incredible temple, because he is the most incredible God. 
So that's his dream. And then God sends him this message. And the message from God was basically, David, thank you for that. I appreciate the gesture, but you can't build my temple. I appreciate the offer, but for various reasons, we're not going to get into that this morning. You aren't going to be the one to build my temple, but your son Solomon can build the temple. And so David does this amazing thing. David decided, rather than getting bitter and all his feelings hurt, he said, if I can't build the temple, what I can do is I can do the capital campaign. I can raise all the money and gather all the resources for the temple so that when Solomon decides to build the temple, he'll have all the gold, all the stone, all the wood, all the precious jewels, all the money, all the resources he needs so he doesn't have to take time to raise any money. He can just get to building the temple. So that's exactly what David does. He goes to work and he raises all the money, and I mean lots of money, to build this building that he knows he will never see in his lifetime. Here's what happens. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. Verse 2, with all my resources, I've provided for the temple of my God. The New American Standard says, with all my ability. I love that. With all of my ability, I've provided for the house of my God. And that little phrase basically implies this, that when David thought about what he was going to give in order to build this temple, personally and professionally, he had wealth that he had access to as the king. He had wealth that was his personally. And as we see, he drew from both because he was the king, he dipped into that. He had his own personal resources, he dipped into that. The implication of this little phrase is essentially, I looked for ways to give as much as I could possibly give. There's nothing in here about a percentage. Nowhere in his capital campaign is that discussed. There's nothing in here about, well, you know, God, I want to keep God happy because that's kind of what we want to do. We want to keep God happy. So how little can I give and keep God happy? None of that. Verse 2, David goes on, with all my resources... I provided for the temple of my God. Here's the list. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Verse 3. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything that I've already provided for this holy temple. So he says, in other words, I'm so committed to this thing that not only am I going to give from the wealth that I have access to as the king, I'm dipping into my own personal assets because I want to give, listen, to the maximum of my ability. He just went wild to give everything he could to this project. Here's what happened, verse five. Verse five. Now, he says, he's speaking to the whole assembly, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, officials in charge of the king's work, gave willingly. Under David's leadership, the people of Israel saw their stuff in a different light. They found themselves asking, not how little can I give and keep God happy with me, which is a question a lot of us tend to ask, but they asked, what can I do with what I have to enable myself to give more? Like, what can I do that, so that I know that I'm giving to the maximum of my ability. Like, how can I give as much as possible? That was the question. That's different. That's a different approach. The question we're always trying to figure out 
is how little can I give and keep God happy with me? Like, I know I got to give something. I understand that. And I don't want God to be mad at me. So what's the least I can give? And God's like, so God, you know, so somehow I give this amount and God's like, wow, way to go. You're such a great Christian. It's why we ask things like, is tithing still a thing? Like, isn't that an Old Testament thing? And if it still applies, then what is the percentage? Is the percentage off my gross or my net? Okay, you've asked the question. And what about my tax refund? Do I have to tithe off that? Because here's the thing. When you dig into that and peel the layers back, we want to know how little we can give and still keep God happy with us. But that is the wrong approach. It's not someone who's looking for ways to max out their abilities to give. So what was it that David and the people knew that allowed them to give to a place or get to a place where they're looking for ways to give extravagantly? The passage says that along with their extravagant giving, they were excited. There was joy. There was anticipation. There was all this positive emotion associated with giving. Now, let's be honest. For the average church-going Christian in North America, I don't think there's a lot of positive emotion associated with giving. Usually, the dominant emotion is guilt. But here's the difference. Here's where the people of Israel found joy in their extravagant giving. It's because they understood the difference between ownership and stewardship. That was the difference. They understood the difference between ownership, like it's mine, and God, I'm going to give you some. Thank you so much. And stewardship is, God, it's all yours anyway. I'm just a manager of it. So here's what happened. David prays a prayer, and this prayer gives some incredible insight into his perspective. Verse 10. Says David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Say that with me. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. David recognized that everything that he possessed as a king. Everything that he possessed personally, everything that everybody in his kingdom possessed, ultimately, everything belonged to God. It wasn't theirs. Destroyed the whole myth of ownership. And and they understood that we are simply handling and managing that which belongs to God. That's the difference between ownership and stewardship. So do you know what a steward is supposed to do? A steward is supposed to handle or manage somebody else's stuff with the goals of the other person, the goals of the owner in mind. That's a good steward. Somebody who handles and manages someone else's stuff with the intent to please and to meet the goals and to accomplish the purposes of the owner, not the steward. Stewardship is protecting and growing the owner's assets with fierce intensity. Protecting and growing what has been entrusted to him or her to her. Like, I'm going to protect it. I'm going to make sure it's not wasted. I'm going to grow it with fierce intensity. That's what a good steward does. Stewardship is about, like, not ownership, but stewardship is about saying, God, you have deposited on account with me talents and abilities and money and resources and opportunities and health and influence and all this stuff. So, God, what would you like to see happen with that which you've entrusted to me? What would you like to see happen with all of this that you've entrusted to me? That's what stewardship is all about. And we are stewards. You may not believe that. You may not like it. You may not accept it. You may think this is just another manipulation from another pastor to raise a bunch of money. I just want you to know, you are a steward because everything belongs to God. You may live with the illusion that you're an owner, 
but you're not an owner. I can prove that to you. Someday, someday you're not going to be here any longer. I'm, I'm sorry if that bursts your bubble or if you had other plans, but someday you're not going to be here any longer. Someday a few friends will gather around a grave in a cemetery and will say our final goodbyes to you. You ever seen an open grave? How many of you have ever seen an open grave? Huh. We'll say our final goodbyes around this open grave. And this open grave is a remarkably small hole. Even for a traditional casket, still a small hole in the ground. There isn't much room in there. Sometimes there's barely room for the casket, and that could be awkward. But there's definitely, uh, there definitely isn't enough room for your stuff. So what's going to happen to your stuff? Well, when your time on earth is done, you're going to leave your stuff right here, right? Since you're not taking it with you, I guess it's not really yours. Like, you have it for a time, and you have a responsibility for it for a time. So the question is, will you invest it solely in your little kingdom that's only going to last for a few years anyway? Or will you take advantage of this incredible opportunity to ha- that you have as a steward to invest in something, listen, that lasts for eternity? Do you know one day Jesus showed up in that very temple? You flip ahead to the New Testament, that's the temple, like same temple that David and his people gave all that money and all their wealth and they eventually died and nobody knows any of their names except for David and a handful of his closest people. We don't know what happened to the rest of their money. We don't know what happened to their families. We don't know, but we know this, that they invested in something that was part of God's work in the world and hundreds of years later, after some rebuilding, some renovation, Jesus walked into that very temple and I think that's pretty awesome. Can you imagine the kind of impact the followers of Jesus in this very wealthy nation that we call home understood we are not owners, we're stewards. Can you imagine the impact of followers of Jesus in this community understood we're not owners, we're stewards? And wait, wait, wait. Can you imagine if followers of Jesus in this church, followers of Jesus who gather in this room on a regular basis, if we all came to understand that we're not owners, we're stewards? Can you imagine the impact on our community? If we really understood and believed and practiced this, I'm just talking about this church, Faith Community Fellowship. Can you imagine the reach of the gospel, the physical needs that would be met in our community if we would embrace this idea that we're not owners, we're stewards? God, teach us to give to the maximum of our ability. I said we would look at two passages of Scripture, so let's turn over to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16. In this chapter, Jesus teaches this parable, and I guarantee uh, you aren't that familiar with this one. It's not, uh, like not on the same level as Good Samaritan and Prodigal Son, but it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, so let's get into it. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. So here's the situation. There's this very wealthy man who got tired of having to deal with his own finances. I mean, don't you hate that? Like when you have so much money, you just got so much money and so much stuff and so many assets and so many properties and so many employees that you just have to hand it off to somebody else. You got to pay someone else to do it because man, what a hassle, right? Like I'd like to give it a shot. So, so he hired a guy and he's like, look, I want to I wanna play golf, and I want to hang out, and I want to travel. I want you to run my estate. I want you to pay the bills, hire the staff, manage the business, manage my money, and I'll pay you well to do that. I just don't want to have to think about it anymore. 
because I want to do what I want to do. So that's the arrangement. But somewhere down the road, he finds out uh, through friends or relatives or his golfing buddies, somehow he finds out that his money manager is doing a lousy job, that he's not being a very good manager of his money. And we don't know if it was a matter of bad investments or if he was embezzling or if he wasn't bothering to pay the bills or if he was just ruining the owner's reputation. We don't know what the situation was, but word gets back to him that this guy's, that he's, guy that he's hired to manage his business and manage his affairs is doing a bad job. So he calls him in and he's like, look, I, I want you to close out whatever accounts that we have open. I want you to finish up whatever little business you're doing. And at the end of the day, uh, bring the big black notebook and bring me your key ring. Turn it in. You're finished. You can't be my money manager anymore. You have a little bit of time to finish up what you're working on. Just come see me at the end of the day because after that, you're fired. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So here's what he's doing. He's looking into the future. He knows he has a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity, and he thinks to himself, what should I do with my little bit of time and my little bit of opportunity so that when I no longer have a job, I'll be taken care of? Because I'm not strong enough to work the ground and I'm way too proud to beg. I've got a little bit of time. I've got a little bit of opportunity. How can I take advantage of this opportunity of this little bit of time so that when all is said and done, I'm taken care of? And he comes up with a plan, remarkably fast. Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. In other words, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking, what can I do now uh, with this little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity so that I will have some place to go? There's what he did, verse 5. He called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. He replied, the manager told him, uh, take your bill, sit down quickly, Make it 450. <laughs> to which the guy's like, 450? Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. If you ever need anything, call me. Oh, don't worry. I will. <laughs> Verse 7. He asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He told him, take your bill. Make it 800. 800? Yeah, 800. You're getting a discount today. Well, thank you so much. If there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. Oh, don't worry. I will. And at this point in the parable, I think everybody listening to Jesus tell the story, they're like, boo, hiss, evil money manager, right? Bad guy. This guy's terrible. And of course, the disciples are like, do you know where this is going? I don't know where this is going because I never knew what Jesus was talking about. And so here comes the surprise. There's always a surprise. Verse 8, the master, this is crazy, the master commended the dishonest manager. Why? Because he had acted shrewdly. Ooh, that's a surprise. That's a twist. That is, he had a little bit of time, and he had a little bit of opportunity, and he leveraged his time, and he leveraged his opportunity so that in the future, things would work out well for him. And the man who had all this stuff, who had originally hired him, recognized, hey, that was brilliant. You recognize you had just a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity, and you leveraged your time and your opportunity, and now you're going to be taken care of. And sure, you're dishonest, and you're conniving, and you're a bum, and yeah, you ripped me off, and I got to hand it to you. That was shrewd. And at this point, Jesus pulls out of the parable and he begins to comment on the parable. And this is kind of unusual and pretty wonderful, actually, because in most parables, Jesus just kind of tells a story and, and walks away and leaves everybody like, what, what was that about? So this time he actually gives a commentary and in doing so, gives us God's perspective on our stuff. Verse eight, this is Jesus teaching now. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. So this is Jesus' way of saying, you know something? 
The people that live in this world, that have a world, kind of a different worldview, the world that has nothing eternal about it, the world that comes and then it goes, you know, 70 years of life, then I die. He says people who live in that context are more shrewd than the Christian. Like he wouldn't call them Christians then, but we'd say Christians. They're more shrewd than the people of light. And he begins to give us some insight into that. What do you mean, Jesus? Verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The word wealth here doesn't just mean money. It really means stuff. It's all your stuff. That's what the word means. So Jesus is instructing us, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is an incredibly weird and powerful statement. Here's what he's saying. All he's saying is all of your stuff is a tool. Everything you have, everything that I've entrusted to your care and your stewardship, not just your money, not just your savings, not just your investments, but all of your stuff is a tool. And he says to us, I want you to use your stuff to make friends for yourself in this life so that when your life here on earth is over and you no longer have any stuff, when you walk into heaven, this is an amazing image, when you walk into heaven, there will be people there who welcome you to heaven because of how you used your stuff. That when you arrive in heaven, that someone will walk up to you and like, hi, welcome, I've been waiting for you. And you're like, hi, are you like some famous Bible character? I don't recognize you. And they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm Fred. Fred, oh, hi, Fred. Hi, yeah, Fred. Remember you gave to that service project and you gave to that church's regular offering and you gave to that mission thing? You may not know this, and I didn't realize it at the time, but as a result of that, as a result of your generosity, because you helped provide for people like me through some other stuff that happened in my life, I became a follower of Jesus, and I'm here because you gave. So thank you. Can you imagine? You and I are exhorted by Jesus himself. Use your stuff in such a way that people will let you have some influence with them, that they will see the generosity of your spirit, that they will see the light that you carry, that they will come to Jesus and enter into a relationship with their heavenly father. And Jesus says you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings because of how you use your stuff. This is not just about putting money in a box or making an intangible digital donation on a giving portal because it's not just the money you put in the box or that you give online that belongs to God. What belongs to God? Say it with me. Everything belongs to God. And God's like, look, it's mine. We've already established that. I want you to use it for my kingdom's sake. Now, when it comes to being a good steward, it's not just about giving and it's not just about giving more. For many of us, in order to grow into a good steward, it's going to mean rearranging and reordering our entire financial worldview, like rearranging and reordering everything that has to do with our finances. So here's what I mean. Uh, Ron Blue, you've probably read some of his books, is an author. He's written a lot of books on personal finance. In one of his books, I think it was, uh, Ma- I think it was Master Your Money, he says there are basically five things you can do with money. And you may find an exception to this, but basically every dollar you spend goes towards one of these five things. He says you can spend your money, you can use it to repay your, your debt or pay your bills. You can use it to pay taxes. Uh, you can save it and you can give it. Like basically every dollar that you have goes towards one of those five things. You spend it, you repay debt, you pay your taxes, you save it or you give it. That's kind of where your money goes. And the thing that determines the amount of our money that we appropriate to those five categories falls into two categories as well. Like two things that basically determine 
how we divide up our money within these five categories. And they are, number one, our priorities, and number two, self-control. Your priorities and self-control. You look at how much money you have, and you decide how much I'm going to spend. Here's how much I'm going to use to pay my bills. Here's how I'm, I'm going to be an honest taxpayer, so I'm going to take care of that. Here's how I'm going to save or invest, and here's how I'm going to give. Your priorities determine how much your money goes to each of those things. But then on top of that is your self-control because you know as well as I do that even if you've decided, like, these are my priorities, if your lack of self-control kicks in, your budget's out the window, right? You know, if you've ever been there, ever lived that, ever been in your 20s. But anyway, the interesting thing, right? Okay, the interesting thing about these five categories is is that what's on the screen is basically the order in which the average American uses or makes use of their money. Like the first thing I want to do is spend it. Like I want to spend it on myself. Secondly, I'm going to, I got to pay my bills. You know, I got to repay debt so that I don't get into financial trouble. Then I, like, I want to stay out of jail. So I got to pay my taxes. If there's any left over, I'd like to save some. And if there's any left over after that, I'll probably give to something. That's sort of how we deal with that. That basically, that's basically how the majority of people run their finances, and that, uh, that applies to church people too. The problem is this basically boils down to a me-first attitude. That's, ba- that's basically the ownership model. And as long as we think that, like in terms of these five categories in this order, here's what happens. We end up giving God our leftovers. And that's what an owner does not what a steward does. Stewardship is not about giving. Stewardship is not even about giving more. Stewardship is about reordering your finances so they reflect the belief that everything belongs to God and we're simply stewards of it. Stewardship isn't just about an offering on Sunday. It's about, it's about thinking. It's about our mindset. It's about an attitude. It's about reordering, reprioritizing everything in our financial world to reflect what we believe to be true, that we are stewards, not owners. I got one more passage I want to look at, and this one's a familiar one, actually, in Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to read some verses to you. They don't need much explanation. Pretty self-explanatory. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And, and literally, the word money there means stuff. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And all of us would agree, like, life is not stuff, right? Life is not, you know, where am I going to live and what am I going to wear and where am I going to, what am I going to drive and am I going to get my kids through college? That's really not what life is made of. But what happens when we live life like we're owners, these things begin to creep in and they consume our thinking and they consume our emotions because we aren't owners. We aren't meant to live as owners. Jesus calls us to live as stewards. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? In other words, like you worry and 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 you don't even, sometimes you're not even worrying about the things that actually matter. Like we worry about things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Verse 28, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grows? how they grow, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you little faith? Do you know why we worry? I'm going to tell you why we worry. We worry because we don't trust that our Heavenly Father is going to take care of that thing on our behalf. So we carry the weight and we carry the pressure. We live with this thing that bears down on us. And Jesus is saying, that, like, then you clearly don't trust your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father takes care of the birds. Your Heavenly Father takes care of the flowers. Your Heavenly Father is very tuned in to what you need. And Jesus building, is building up to this incredible principle where he's going to say, look, wouldn't you like your Heavenly Father to shoulder some of that burden? Wouldn't you like to be able to close your eyes and go to sleep at night and, and go, like, I don't know how it's going to work out, but my Heavenly Father does. So we've got to reorder. We've got to reprioritize. We've got to quit, quit thinking and acting like an owner and start thinking and acting like a steward. Jesus goes on, I love this next part, verse 31. So again, he says, do not worry, saying what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, <laughs> and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Did you catch that? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. We don't really have to worry, but I'm going to I'm tell you, you will always worry as long as you think and live ownership and not stewardship. Verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And he's like, it basically, if you reverse the order, if you'll reorder your thinking, if you'll think and act like a steward instead of an owner, sometimes seeking my kingdom first means reordering your priorities. Then he wraps it up with this, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm extremely grateful for the generosity of this church. I tell you, there's some people here who clearly understand this principle, and they've, they've modeled it for me for years. I'm, I'm praying that more and more of us will catch this. I'm praying for the day that we will give more and more money here, let me rephrase that, that we'll give more and more of the money that we take in, that we will give it away to people and organizations here in our community and around the world who are doing the work of the kingdom. That's a worthy thing, isn't it? Isn't that something to shoot for? I also believe that in addition to praying as a senior leader in this church, I have a responsibility to model it. I have a responsibility to teach it. Now, listen, I'm thrilled that we're talking about money right now uh, when this church doesn't need the money you, because you've been so faithful. But just because we don't need more money to pay the bills and pay the salaries and keep the programs running because we are meeting our budget consistently. We're meeting our obligations. But I think we all want to do more, right? Like just because we're financially healthy, I don't want to miss what God wants to do through us all over our community and on places around the world if we'll understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. But since we're talking about money, let me say this. Since you brought it up. If we're going to continue to build a church and train leaders and minister to felt needs in our community and engage more and more people in ministry, it's going to cost money. Like if we were, if we were simply content to be kind of a, kind of, I guess, a healthy church for the most part, pay the staff, pay the energy bill, you know, whatever, we're doing fine. But if we're going to leverage this opportunity and this, mo this moment that we're in that God has given us, it's going to cost money. The great news is the money's in the bank. It's just in your bank. And if you're a participant in this church or a volunteer and you're a percentage giver, like pick any percent. Doesn't like pick a percentage. Just start giving it. 
Like pick the percentage that is how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and give it. Start giving it like the Israelites did in response to David's temple capital campaign. Give it like the New Testament Christians did in the very beginning in the book of Acts. I love it when people visit here and they're like, uh, they realize later, like, wait, they, they never took up an offering. We've never taken up an offering by putting an offering plate or a donation bucket in front of someone. We've never done that. From the very beginning, we felt that was off-putting to unchurched people. So for over 26 years, we've, been, we've never done that. And you've been faithful and generous to support the mission of this church by dropping your donation, your offering in those little boxes in the lobby or by donating a lot of you regularly online. And for those of you who have faithfully and generously supported our mission with your finances over the years and your, your financial sacrifices, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your regular financial support is one way for us to come alongside one another and partner together. Why? To engage more people, to lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus. How? Well, I just think the more consistent, the more generous we are with our giving, the more resources we have to help more people and to reach more people. Faith community is an independent congregation. We aren't a part of any denomination or association or governing body. Uh, We're completely autonomous which means all of our financial support comes through the weekly offerings, the pastor's salaries, the maintenance of the facilities, including improvements to the facilities, utilities, um, including, uh, you know, utilities, you know what that is, insurance, uh, programming and curriculum for all of our children's ministries and all the way through small groups. Everything you see and enjoy and benefit from is paid for by offerings that come in through those little wooden boxes in the lobby and the giving terminal at the coffee bar and the giving portal on our website and our P.O. box. And if we think of any other ways for you to give, we'll let you know. But that's how, it, that's how it's funded. Here's the thing. Today, we're, we're healthy financially. We're perhaps in the best financial position we've ever been in. We paid off our mortgage this spring, three years early. Uh, I'm not teaching on this this morning because there's a financial need in the church budget. Your, finance, your faithful giving is covering that. Keep doing that. But I feel like stewardship is calling us to do more because we've been recipients of so much. There are real immediate needs right here in our community and with our ministry partners in various places around the world. So I think there's a sense of let's do more. Like how can we be even more generous? How can we give more of what we take in? That's one of the reasons we felt it was time to do a giving challenge that we're doing with the giving summer. You know, none of what we're raising with that and collecting for that stays within these walls. All of your generosity towards that project is going to benefit some families in our community who are struggling to put food on the table, to provide basic necessities for their household, to outfit their kids for the coming school year, and for our dear friends in those mountain villages in Guatemala to provide the most basic health care, to treat the issues that they deal with from you know, drinking contaminated water and stuff like that and gathering wood every day to build a fire so they can maybe eat. Let's be more generous. Let's be more generous than we've ever been before so that we can more effectively and more consistently be the hands and feet and heart of Jesus in the lives of people who need to know that they are seen, they have value, and they are loved. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, as we examine our lives, as we look at all that we've received, in some cases all that we've accumulated, we understand and we acknowledge, today we declare that it's all from you. It's all from you and it all belongs to you. Everything is the Lord's. But we're well aware of our own tendency to lean into an ownership mentality, to think that somehow we've earned what we have 
We deserve it. We're in charge of it. We'd like to keep most of it. We know our tendency toward that. Like today we acknowledge our desire to hold on, to ensure that we have enough, to withhold generosity if we have to. And I know, Lord, a lot of that comes from worry, that maybe you aren't able to provide everything we need. Maybe you'll choose not to give us what we want, so we worry about it. And our worry causes us to hold on to what we've been given, what we've been trusted with, money and resources and stuff. We fall in love with it. We love how it makes us feel. We love the illusion of security and control that comes with it. So today, we see that in ourselves. And I believe we want to leave that mindset behind. To walk away from a view that says we own it, we control it, we deserve it, it's ours. To embrace an attitude that says everything, everything is the Lord's. You've entrusted it to us to manage for your purposes and for your glory. So Father, bring us to a place as a church where we're like David and the people of Israel that were looking for an opportunity to give as much as we possibly can. Not because you need it, but because we love you. We want to see your kingdom flourish on the earth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.